Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a year of unthinkable loss, there may be no other facet of life more universal than the feeling of grief. In light of this comes Gravity, a podcast from a woman who knows loss like no other and comes equipped with the tools to guide us through. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, physician and widow to Paul Kalanithi of When Breath Becomes Air, explores various life challenges with guests who have faced these issues head on. In conversation, they share the wisdom that helped them survive their hardest times and prove life is still worth living. Gravity isn't a show about overcoming or triumph, yet it isn't horribly depressing. It's a full-hearted and honest deep dive into everything that is grief and all its messiness, resilience, and hope. Subscribe and follow Gravity wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Robbie, what's going on this week? Well, it seems like President Biden is facing the limits of these unity talks. Like, uh, you know, most notably, he and Senate Republicans remain about $1.5 trillion apart on the infrastructure package. They still haven't even agreed yet on a definition of infrastructure or how they would pay for it. And it seems like one of the sticking points here is coming down to Democrats who want to pay for this significant piece of legislation by raising the corporate tax rate uh, and Republicans wanting everyday Americans to pay for it through what they call user fees and gas tax under the theory that the people who use the infrastructure should pay for it. Uh, Jason, what should Biden do here? Well, I mean, I think like bipartisanship is a good thing and compromise is a good thing when there are really valid arguments to make on both sides. I don't know about you. I don't I don't find the other side's argument particularly valid here. I mean, first of all, the assumption within this is that corporations don't benefit from infrastructure in this country. Like, I, you know, if you ship anything, <laughs> then like if, if, if you send anything over the road in a truck, well, then the argument by the Republicans here is that the trucker should be paying for that, that the trucking company should be paying for that at the, at the highest level, but that like, I don't know, the company making the goods and making the vast majority of the money shouldn't. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so I'm not sure that bipartisanship is a particularly worthy goal when you get a substantially lesser product out of it. Yeah. And fees are taxes, right? Right. There's just so, regressive taxes. Yeah. They want to raise taxes on, on most Americans at the expense of big corporations who've seen record low tax rates. Like these are corporations, by the way, who don't even pay it 
by and large, they're the tax rate that's on paper, right? So they're already skirting taxes. A lot of these corporations pay zero in taxes, at least in the in the corporate tax rate. You know, another thing that's notable about this is just how unpopular the Republican position is. Like any polling I've seen on this issue, like there was a, a Data for Progress poll that said um, there was a 41 point margin in favor of the Democrats position um, of raising corporate taxes. And if you look at history, every time Democrats talk about raising taxes on the wealthy, raising taxes on corporations, it's widely popular. And it's particularly popular right now because it's coming on the heels of a particularly unpopular piece of tax legislation that the Republicans pushed through before. Um, and so by raising taxes on corporations, raising taxes on the ultra wealthy, we'd only be bringing rates back to rates that Americans are familiar with. This isn't some kind of new scary rate um, that people haven't seen before. It also seems like a real political error by the Republicans when you consider that proposing uh, usage taxes on, for instance, on like driving your car, that seems to go right at the voters that they need to hang on to the most right now. People in the suburbs who commute into the city for work or folks who live in rural areas and just as a, as a regular course of their lives drive long distances. I mean, it's interesting because when Pete Buttigieg just sort of floated this in an interview not long ago in his capacity as transportation secretary, they jumped all over him. Now, I'm sure that what they're proposing has nuanced differences to this. But they're still exposing themselves to that political comparison. Right. And it was it was no less than the chair of the Republican Senate committee, Rick Scott, who attacked Buttigieg on that. So that should make good fodder um, for ads as we round the bend heading into the next election. But this is not the only piece of legislation that appears to be stalled. It feels to me like things are taking longer than they should. We we have so many deadlines, like the deadline for the infrastructure bill, I think, is Memorial Day. That's what Biden said. The uh, deadline for making progress on the criminal justice reform legislation on the you know a year from George Floyd's murder, I think that has passed. I think that was this week. And you just go through the uh, election reforms, et cetera. I you know we we're not we're not pessimists on this podcast. We always you know constantly try to say what can we do, but it is a little frustrating to look at the pace of things, and we just don't have that much time. Well, you got to think about it from the perspective of the Republicans. I mean, when, when I was in the minority party in the state legislature, we had very limited power. And the one thing we could do was take up time. And it wasn't even like, I, I think when people think about taking up time in a legislative body, they think about specific pieces of legislation. But the truth is, if you're truly in the minority, and if you recognize that, okay, the other side is going to be able to get whatever they want done because they have the votes, then you drag your feet on everything. You try and slow everything down. That's what we would do. When I was in the state house, you know, the rule was that in the house, you got, once you got recognized at the microphone, uh, you had 15 minutes uh, to speak. Well, we, it didn't matter what the topic was. Like, it was our responsibility to get up and talk for 15 minutes on every single thing we possibly could. And then that brings me to the issue that's within this that sort of is over everything right now, but we may not think about it always with things like infrastructure uh, or other topics, which is the filibuster. Now, I know that there's the question of going through reconciliation here and everything, but what's important to remember is, is that when they're looking for bipartisan votes, it's a higher standard in the Senate and it's more difficult because you're not just on most issues, you're not just looking to get people to vote with you on the underlying legislation. There are a few senators who probably are inclined to do so on infrastructure or on another topic we're going to talk about in a minute. 
But in order to do that, they've got to vote with the Democrats on the procedural vote of moving past the filibuster, which is a whole different ballgame. When I was in the state house, like there could be a bill that I was planning to vote on. But the overall strategy of the Democrats to stop bad things from happening was to slow everything down and to grind the gears to a halt. So what you never, ever did was vote yes when the Republicans moved to shut down debate and and end and go to the next topic, even if you were absolutely going to vote for the underlying piece of legislation. And that's what makes this so much higher of a of a standard of bipartisanship right now. This is the kind of thing that Democrats and Republicans should be negotiating over this infrastructure bill. They, generally speaking, like smaller government, we like to do more traditionally going back even before FDR, right? So part of this is kind of normal politics. The question is, when all is said and done and people are trading numbers, do normal politics continue and do we pass a piece of legislation here? Or does this helter-skelter politics of Trump take over and say that under no circumstances can we legitimize the Biden presidency by allowing any victory, even if it's for a good, like a, something that we should all agree on infrastructure. This has to be the thing that if there's anything that people can agree to work together on, it's it's roads, bridges, et cetera. That's what I'm asking. I am not optimistic that the party that won't even bless a bipartisan commission to study January 6th, which is, you know, studying, you know, the own attempted murder of themselves uh, <laughs> would uh, legitimize the Biden presidency with infrastructure. But there's no sense in being pessimistic on this. We just have to wait. But on that topic, Jason, what what meaning should we make of the fact that Republicans who some of them had a lot of tough talk right in the aftermath, not enough of them, by the way, but some of them had some tough talk in the aftermath of January 6th, refuse now to, to study it? I think what this says, and it's not that surprising, is that working with the other side just has for almost everyone in almost every position now in Washington, because of gerrymandering and because of the polarization in our politics, there's just so little payoff from even acting rational. And and there's so much potential disincentive, so much negative that's out there lurking for doing that, even on something that is so obvious. Um, and I think we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which while January 6th and what happened was horrible and it was it's a day in our history that we should never forget and that we should study for the average American, it's no longer affecting their life. For the average American, what's affecting their life is the economy and, you know, going back to school, go, you know, the, the reopening of things. And that's what's affecting people's lives. And so I guess what I'm saying is that's how Republicans can get away with it. It is a combination of, look, there's not that much upside to being for this, uh, if any at all, politically for them. And on top of that, I don't think it's something that people who are not, frankly, partisans that agree with you and I are demanding from them. I, I, right. I can't imagine that they're getting it demanded from them much for, from independents. Independents were super upset by it, I'm sure, and it may have moved them away from the Republican Party in many cases. But I don't think... It's something that they're still thinking about. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I haven't really spent a lot of my brain space thinking about this, in part because I have such low expectations of Congress. You know, they're going to come together. What are they going to do? The, you know, the best case scenario is what Richard Burr and I think Warner did on the intelligence and looking into the Russian interference in the election. I think they kind of very quietly put out a report 
basically saying, yeah, the Russians interfered. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it made zero impact on the debate. But it was, a, it, was, it was important because when the FBI or the DOJ puts out a report like that, there's going to be accusations that it's the Biden administration putting it out, et cetera. So it does help when you have a bipartisan, and it used to be that we would treat those institutions as apolitical, especially the FBI, but obviously those days are gone. It does help when you have a bipartisan group of people saying, look, this is what happened. But I just, I have such low expectations that I just, I, I really, I don't care that much. I think it's almost like a political thing. It's like, okay, they don't want it. We'll have to bring this up, you know, down the line when we're in Senate elections, et cetera, you know? I also think there's probably less energy even from our side on this for a variety of reasons. And there's, I think, bigger fish to fry. There's forward-looking fish to fry. There's also the fact that I think like with the Russia investigation, I I think there was rightfully a sense of urgency of we have to act right now because this is an impending threat that's coming back. Now, I'm not saying this isn't a possible threat to have this happen again, but it doesn't feel quite so impending. It doesn't feel, and it doesn't feel like we don't have a handle on what happened. We don't have a handle on what happened internally within the government. We don't have a handle on, you know, everything that uh, went wrong and orders that were or were not given at the top levels, like within the guard and and that sort of thing, and at the Pentagon. But what we what we do have a handle on is what happened and who's to blame. And while a lot of Republicans in Congress won't actually say that out loud, as a culture, we have rendered a verdict on this. And so I think it it does create a little less urgency. I still think it, it absolutely needs to happen. What's interesting about it is it seems to be really upsetting Joe Manchin. And and he seems to be really bothered by the fact that. Tell me more about that. I didn't see uh, that. So what did know, he say? I, I saw a couple of quotes from him where he was just he seemed beside himself at the idea that he couldn't get more Republicans on board with this. Um, and you know maybe that's the kind of thing that chips away at his resolve against the filibuster to get him to the point where he's like, look, if if they if they won't even look into January sixth, uh, then you know, hopefully he gets to a point where he says, perhaps that is a fool's errand to continue to try to get 10 Republicans. I thought we'd get to a podcast without mentioning mention, <laughs> but that would be impossible. I, I, one thing I do want to say is I, I feel for the Capitol Police. You know, I think this has got to be a, I, it's unfathomable. Like people were accusing the Capitol Police writ large of a lot of things, including people on the left when the attack happened. And that had to be demoralizing while, you know, they're losing their own, they're being attacked. Uh, and then now to have their, you know, the people they are sworn to protect are unwilling to even look into what happened. Um, I've been reading about just a lot of people are quitting, taking other jobs. I don't blame them. And that's really sucks. And it, it just shows like all this tough talk uh, from the Republicans about how, you know, pro law enforcement they are, you know, whenever that tough talk meets the reality of the politics of the Republican Party, they'll choose their own self-interest over the people who put on uniform. I agree. And the other really upsetting part of this is this this debate that's happening where whenever anybody compares it to 9-11 because they're trying to invoke, you know, the convening of a 9-11 commission, you have these folks who on the right, including members of Congress, who shame anyone who makes that comparison. And I just don't get that. I mean, it was an attack on our country and, it, you know, it was on the Capitol. Like, folks were I mean, I don't, we don't have to rehash it. We know what it was. Yeah, you didn't have thousands of people die, but it was an attack on our nation, like at the heart of our nation. And I mean, it's, I, I don't see how anybody's getting away with shaming anyone for making the comparison. It's actually, I think, a very apt comparison 
and it's yeah. obviously worthy of a commission. And it it also says a lot about where we are in in our politics now versus where we were then, because I don't recall there being any debate whatsoever about whether to investigate nine eleven. I don't, I don't, you know, there were all sorts of politics that came out of that, but I don't recall there being any question as to whether or not we were going to investigate that. I was thinking the other day, what would the world be like today if 9-11 happened in today's politics? Mm. And I was thinking about Al-Qaeda, right? Still exists. Uh, and I was thinking about it in relation to Afghanistan and the fact that we're pulling out of Afghanistan. If I were like in Al Qaeda like headquarters right now, and I'm like gaming out what to do against the United States, I'd be like, let's just watch Netflix for ten years and do nothing because this country is tearing itself apart without us. And the best <laughs> strategy we could have is like, we, there's like we now have domestic terrorists. That's what January six is. Who are way more dangerous because they're they live amongst us. They're protected by one political party. And at various points, they get political power, both at the, the the local state and then at the federal level. They have an authoritarian streak, and they have and will continue to do serious harm to American citizens. If I were over at, at Al Qaeda HQ, I'd be like, "That's just fine. Like, let's let's just let them take care of themselves. Let's let's move on to something else." Well, that's that's definitely a huge difference. It's, we we tend to think of it as like our politics have gotten worse, our politics have gotten more polarized and more caustic. But really, what it is is our politics have just taken center stage in everything, right? And you know, twenty years ago, I guess yeah, is it twenty twenty years ago? Uh, the difference is that something like that would happen, and it was something that happened to the country. And then also there was the politics of the country, but it was also right. there's this. And now every single thing that happens, I mean, heck, even cultural stuff, even what happens with pop stars and with sports, it's all filtered through politics. And that definitely makes us weaker as a country. There's no doubt about it. And so, you know, obviously the assumption has always been that when when a country, any country, including this one, is divided politically and culturally, that the one thing that brings it together is an outside threat. And it's funny, I was thinking about this the other day too, but what I was thinking was, is that it, it wouldn't be an attack from another nation. I mean, look, we got attacked by Russia. It wasn't like a direct kinetic attack. It was uh, it was indirect, sort of asymmetric uh, warfare online. And that didn't, that clearly had more of a dividing uh, effect than it did a uniting effect. I actually, and this is somewhat tied to what's been in the news lately, and I've kind of mentioned it with you and, and Grace and everybody, and nobody's really wanted to talk about it. I think it's the aliens. I think the only thing left, I think it's Independence Day all over again. I think that if if there is, you know, going off this 60 Minutes UFO thing, if it turns out that there are big ships that are over Kansas City and New York and Chicago and everywhere in a few, like, weeks... Maybe that would unite us, but I'm not even sure because I think some people would just go, no, that's not actually happening. <laughs> well, well, Independence Day is coming up, Jason. Uh, exactly. So, uh, well, everybody be on the lookout. Uh, one quick hit I want to mention because I just want to put it on everybody's radar. The Manhattan District Attorney has convened a grand jury that is expected to decide whether in, to indict Trump. I mention this because this is the first piece of news like this tangible piece of news that investigations have been evolving against Trump. Uh, and I want to mention it for one particular reason, which is in Florida, there is this weird law that says the governor of Florida can stop interstate extradition of people. Hmm. 
an interesting thing that could happen is this would be both entertaining and horrifying is if Trump is like a fugitive within the US. So he's like in Florida. And you, we all know DeSantis is going to make a play here if if Trump is indicted and they try to get him in Florida. DeSantis will absolutely grandstand and try to protect Trump. Now, in the end, I looked into this. There's a federal law that, that will override this, but DeSantis will try to use the state law and it will get really messy because you'll have state troopers against FBI agents, et cetera, because the FBI would probably be the ones to swoop in and take him to New York, even if it's a state crime. But the, the wild card is Trump loves to go to New Jersey in the summer. So that's a Democratic governor. So I'm, I might be the only crazy person who's monitoring this situation, but I do want to put it on people's radars if, if our producer doesn't cut this. This is like a, like a, a really interesting story, I think. Um, and I think it, it could get really weird over the summer. I think it's like the perfect thing to add in right after I talk about aliens, first yes. of all. Yeah. And, and second, <laughs> second uh, I don't think it's actually crazy at all. Like, uh, entertaining and horrifying at the same time, it, it could be the title of like Trump's memoir. There, there is, when it comes to Trump, like there is no like crazy conspiracy theory at this point, other than like you know it turns out he was totally clean the whole time. Like I mean that that would you'd have to have like some pretty crazy conspiracies to to figure out. Like no, the guy's not even remotely corrupt. Uh, I was thinking about when I saw this headline and I saw this story. I was just thinking about how you know the old notion and like the always notion in this country is that. Well, look, we don't imprison, you know, our former leaders when they brought yeah. out of power. That's not something we do. And I've always figured like that would ultimately govern the day when it came to Trump that, you know, at the end of the day, like none of these investigations or prosecutions would really go anywhere because it's just not something we do in America. But look, the dude, <laughs> if he broke the law and obviously he did in a in innumerable ways. And, and if there's a case that they're going to be able to make in New York, and they're going to be able to convict, like, first of all, it's not federal. So it's not like a new administration took over and then went after their predecessor. I mean, if he if he broke New York laws, like, he should be like everybody else, he should go to jail for it. And and I just think the old notion that that's not something we do in this country should give way to the older notion that nobody is above the law. As regular listeners to the show know, Ravi set up a fitness group with teams and we compete for points and it's just like a great way to stay motivated. And so my wife came up with this brilliant idea and asked Ravi, hey, what if we have meditation as an option? And that has been a game changer. Well, if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. So I have some go-tos with Headspace. Like frequently at night, I'll do the powering down. Diana and I will listen to it before we before we go to sleep. I lately have been doing. They have this course on acceptance, and I've been working on that. But like it's applicable to so many different things. Man, it just puts you right in the right headspace, literally where you're supposed to be. So you deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com/m54. That's headspace.com/m54 for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash M54 today. 
Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. At Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks ranging from bestsellers and new releases to original entertainment and thousands of binge-worthy podcasts. Now, our listeners can try Audible Plus for 30 days on us. And with Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog. It's filled with thousands of titles across different formats and genres. One that I really like is this thing called Sherlock Holmes Beyond the Elementary, which basically takes the sort of premise of Sherlock Holmes as a heuristic to teach you about that Victorian era England. So it's kind of like a fun way to learn history. And they have so many of these quirky audio selections, everything from like famous artists walking you through their music catalog and explaining what they like. In addition to just, they have almost every book you want, like Man's Search for Meaning, which is a book that I try to reread every year. Check it out. And remember with Audible Plus, you can download or stream without limit and you can listen offline anytime, anywhere. To start your free 30-day trial of Audible Plus, visit audible.com slash majority54 or text majority54 to 500-500. That's audible.com slash majority54 or text majority54 to 500-500. In this week of misinformation, we will start with a voicemail from one of our listeners. Hi, Jason and Robbie. Love the pod. Really love the idea of everyone having a platform. But the thing I struggle with is I feel like my platform is mostly on social media. Um, I live in a very liberal bubble in New York City, which is great. But I grew up in St. Louis, went to college in Texas, so have lots of family and friends that are very conservative, huge Trump fans. So like, I'm not having these conversations like over dinner or more casually because like my, a lot of my friends and family don't live in New York. And so it, it mostly comes up on social media. And so just like, is there an effective way to have these conversations on Facebook or I feel like mostly these days, like mostly Instagram um, that doesn't just kind of drive everyone further into their corners? Like how do you effectively respond when people are sharing like conspiracy theories, like links or infographics that you either know are just straight up wrong or they're just bad policies? Or like, is social media just not the place? Any pointers you have would be great. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Well, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. Like in order to get into my social media, I have to go through my two-factor authentication every time. <laughs> and part of that is like a personal choice to to be focused. Like I previously mentioned on this podcast, a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, there's another book that I'm reading right now called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, I think her name is, which is really good and talks about just basically what this whole being on social media does to us both individually and collectively. So for personal reasons, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but also I have become a little paralyzed as this listener has about just what is effective and what isn't. And and one thing that has become clear is that sometimes when we're engaging with posts online, especially posts that we disagree with, we are unintentionally promoting those ideas because these algorithms in social media, they tilt in favor of engagement that is heated, right? So if I, if I, if I quote tweet uh, Ben Shapiro or write in the comments and disagree with him or start you know, fighting with somebody in the comment section of something that they post that's misinformation, it actually is helping to spread that misinformation. So just as a starting point, do not engage directly on content that you don't want to spread. You know, maybe post your own stuff that's affirmatively informing people uh, and try to flood people's feeds with that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't 
engage directly on content that you don't want to spread. Yeah, that's actually something that I've only really come to understand recently. So I'm trying now to do a better job, like literally starting in the last couple of days of, you know, not directly quote tweeting somebody who I want to, you know, disagree with or whatever, just referencing them instead and whatever. Uh, so I think that's important. For the caller, there's a couple of things I would say. One, you have to think about your audience as the people you are trying to persuade. And in your case, it is the folks in St. Louis or in Texas, uh, your you know circle of friends, your social orbit from there, which means a couple of things. Don't just share stuff that is like going to uh, resonate with the people you work with in New York, the people you hang out with in New York. You know, think about how it's going to go over back home. Now, I'm not saying that you should like moderate your views. I'm saying think about how you talk about it. Do it in a way that's relatable to folks back home. Like you, in that way, you have to be like a national politician. You you can't just talk to your own crowd instead of just like throwing up an infographic like you said, you know, maybe you have to think about how it relates to the place where you're from. So if if there's a town in Texas that you're from and that's where a bunch of your friends are, uh, then talk about how this is going to affect you know, the teachers at the high school there. Talk about how it's going to affect, you know, the community there. Actually talk to those people as if you still live there. I think that's an important part of it. The other part of it is don't only talk about politics. You know, yes. it's funny. Amen. Amen. Yeah, because you want you want people who disagree with you to continue to listen to you. Yeah. And and so it's funny because, you know, people joke about how, like the other day, People were saying, like, sometimes they can't tell whether my Twitter account is a political Twitter account or a Royals superfan account. Well, okay, I like to talk about the Royals, but I also recognize that if all I do is go on there and message, 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 message all the time, well, like, there's a certain segment of people who are going to check out on that, and they're not going to listen to any of it anymore. But, you know, if you are a big Royals fan, and you completely agree with my take on the current coach, or you just share my enthusiasm when we win a big game, well, you're you're a little bit more likely to hear my point of view on something else. And for me, like, the analogy to this is when I was Secretary of State, I regularly went on sports talk radio in Kansas City and in St. Louis, and it was really fun for me, but what it was also was an opportunity for me to reach people in a different way. And I knew that it was mostly males, mostly white males, who were listening to that at the time that I was going on, which meant it was mostly conservatives. And it was it was people who I was never going to reach uh, any other way, and it might make them a little more likely to hear me out on my politics. So my point is, don't make all your messaging about politics, and when you do... You need to message in a way that that is aimed at the people you're talking to. And then finally, if you are going to directly engage with people who say things that you disagree with, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're really likely to change their mind when you're having a disagreement that they feel the whole world is watching. If you're going to do that, then you have to recognize that who you're trying to persuade are the other friends of yours who are watching that exchange. And in that way, you know, it's different than the way that we've always said, like, it's not just ask questions and just be really open. If you're going to do that, if you're going to directly engage, you have to win that argument because other yeah. people in your social circle are watching that argument. And that's your audience. Yeah, I want to underline your point about not posting just politics, I would say not posting mostly politics. And for me, I have a different standard for each medium. Twitter, I don't tweet a lot, but almost everybody I follow and that follows me is is pretty liberal on Twitter. So I don't like that's more political than anything else. So I don't really post that much. Facebook, 
uh, is mostly conservatives in my life. I would say way more conservatives in my life. A lot of Staten Island people, a lot of people from Mississippi and Tennessee. So there I post like nine out of 10 non-political. Hopefully over time, every now and then there's a really awesome article that's super persuasive. And I would post it, but with a lot of humanity, like, hey, like, I know a lot of you disagree with me. I find this really persuasive. Don't have to read it. But if you got time, I think you may like it, you know, and trying to use that kind of tone. Well, I, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the last thing I'd say about this is the instinct. The person in this voicemail started out with, hey, maybe social media isn't the place to do this at all. And I think it is important to, you know, manage your expectations as far as that goes. I mean, a personal story for me from the last couple of days is my organization that I am a part of, Veterans Community Project, uh, had a charity golf tournament. And I go to get in my golf cart as part of my like, four-person scramble team, and we had an empty spot, so they, they took a guy who had just paid for one entry fee, and they added him to our team. And so he sits in my cart. We're going to spend like five hours together, and he starts out by saying, hey, uh, it's kind of crazy that we're playing golf together because uh, I'm a very active right-wing guy on Twitter, and I've tweeted at you a lot. And, oh, no. And you actually kind of came back at me once and brought, I think he put it as the candor minions down on me. And then he proceeded to tell me like what we had argued about. And so. Was this the guy you posted on Instagram? Yeah. The other day? Oh, I was wondering who that was. Oh, yeah. Cool. In a yeah. nice way, he basically was like, yeah, so I'm one of your Twitter trolls and we're now going to play golf together oh for five hours. Oh and so we did. And, you know, we did not, I'll be honest, we didn't come to an agreement, but you know, he was very nice. And when he asked me stuff and I told him my opinion, he didn't, you know, respond with like a million exclamation points in real life. And he didn't, you know, or any of that stuff or, or, or like share articles with me. He listened. And I think that that is an important thing to remember is that when the screen is not there between you, the two of you, it does make a difference. Somebody reminded me of like the meme out there where it's two dogs, you know, on each side of a fence and they're barking like crazy at each other. And then somebody removes the fence and they just kind of look at each other like, well, what do we do now? And, and that's, that's the difference between social media and real life. I, I was just thinking like, I can't think of too many arguments I've been in over the past few years that, that didn't involve either uh, a screen or alcohol. Uh, you, take those <laughs> yeah. two things, you take those two things out of the equation and it's really hard to be mean. Ravi, after our last ad for Upstart, uh, a listener contacted me on Instagram, and this is what they said. They said, need to thank you for the Upstart ad on your pod. I didn't think reducing the interest we were paying was possible, but thanks to Upstart, we were able to pay off our credit card debt and saved over 15% on the debt that was owed. Truly life-changing. Thank you to you and Ravi. Now, that totally sounds like copy that was written by Upstart, but it's not, I promise. It actually came from a listener, and I just wanted to start there. That's the best endorsement of this product that I could give. It's such a great product and it's really important because people can really get themselves in a hole and, and those interest rates can be killer. And so I can't recommend it enough. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple, fixed monthly payment. Unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score, like your income and employment history. This means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com majority54. That's upstart.com 
Patreon.com slash Majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to Upstart.com slash Majority54. What we previously would call Quarantine Corner, but we're going to call it um, Aren't We Relatable Corner, Ashley Parker in the Washington Post had a wonderful, charming little article about Biden's routine. And I wanted to talk about it because we talk about our own routines all the time. But, you know, I'm always curious to see what like people who are really, you know, full positions of power, like President of the United States, like what does their day look like? And Ashley, I think, did just a tremendous job going through the, the trivial to the significant in Biden's life. And just wanted to get like a couple highlights, Jason, like he meets privately with people who write him letters. He interrupts meetings to take calls with family members. He may have a Peloton. He had a Peloton during the campaign, but it's like a secret whether he's using it now. He eats soup and salad for lunch, usually chopped salad with grilled chicken, partial orange Gatorade and Coke Zero. He likes sweets, chocolate chip ice cream, chocolate chip cookies, saltwater taffy from Delaware. He does do weightlifting um, and he does not obsessively watch TV. <laughs> Those are some of the, the things. So uh, what stands out to you about Biden's routine? Like, was there anything notable? Two things that jumped out to me were, one, I, I'm so not surprised that he, not to sound like a total meathead, that he lifts weights um, because like, you know, the few times I've been around the guy in person, like for a guy his age, like he just looks really athletic. And he's one of those people who there there are some there are men who I meet in their 70s sometimes who I think that's a good goal. Like if I could still be moving like that, that it looks like he's not in a lot of physical pain all the time, which is really my yeah. goal for my 70s. So that doesn't surprise me. And then the other thing that doesn't surprise me uh, is that he'll step out of things to get calls from his family because we all know how close he is to his family. But, it, you know, for anybody who hasn't heard it, there is a great interview uh, with Hunter Biden that Mark Marin did on his podcast where, you know, he doesn't say much about his dad, doesn't reveal much other than to say, like, yeah, all through my crisis period where I was going through struggling with addiction uh, all the way to now. He's like, I talk to my dad multiple times a day. I hope that when I'm in my seventies, that's the relationship I have with, with my kids. There's so many good nuggets in here. Some of it is like caricature of Biden. Like, you know how, like when you get your iPhone, you get the Apple news thing and it just mm-hmm. kind of pre-populates it. Mm-hmm. And then you could like change the settings if you want to use it or whatever. Apparently he just never changed the setting and it has like, the biggest insect in the world or like a 114 year old Japanese woman. And apparently like he like stops people in the halls and is like, <laughs> like just has like random, like I am tri- so trivial, not knowledge, surprised by that. trivial knowledge about like this woman, this old woman in Japan or something. Uh, there was like another really funny anecdote, which is like, he just like he, he and Coons are uh, Senator from Delaware. Chris Coons are very close. Cause you know, obviously Delaware connection. Apparently Biden either texted or called Coons, uh, and said, hey, if you can be over in a half hour, I'm taking Marine One over to Wilmington. I could give you a ride. And I was thinking to myself, I know you may never run for office again, but if you do and you somehow find yourself in the White House, I need you to promise here on this podcast that one day I'll get a text message saying, hey, I'm uh, I'm taking Marine One over to wherever. Uh, I'll give you a ride. I, I just want to get that promise from you right now. I mean, that is an easy promise to make. If, if you know, if there's a seat. What do you mean if there's a seat? Well, I just, I was just, no, I was just thinking out loud. I was just thinking to myself that like, Wilmington's really close. Like if I'm just going somewhere, it's probably Kansas City. 
And so I'll there'd be plenty of seats because then it's Air Force One. I would be one of those people who took the ride and then flew to wherever I had to go, just <laughs> yeah. so I could take Marine One wherever. You, you go. Knowing you, you would do it. You're like, well, I'm going to get miles on the return. There you so go. That's it's going to be fine because <laughs> you 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 sort of uh, make your life that efficient. Opti- I am an optimizer. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, I think that's all we got on Biden's routine. There's another, just one fun anecdote that there's like it's like kind of a state secret whether he still uses Peloton or not. So, listeners, if you have any intel there, please send it in. Um, and, and I'd love to know whose favorite teacher is, how often he uses it. Like this is the kind of stuff that that we need to know. Grace, how are we are we doing? Are you are we good, or is there some stuff where you're like, this was boring? Add in some stuff, or no? I I wanted to flag that a lot of Biden's routine sounds like he eats and consumes a lot of sugar. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, I was I was gonna make that point. Ah, oh, yeah. I was wondering if that was just an attempt to appear very relatable, or if we actually think that he just has a crazy sweet tooth. Yeah, isn't that perfect for the aren't we relatable corner? Yeah, I, I was with you on this, but I think there were so many mentions of it, uh, the Gatorade thing, that it seems like it's real. And I did find it a little horrifying, too, because you know sugar water is not good for anybody, especially somebody who's a bit older. But he does seem kind of like a, a frenetic kind of guy who's constantly moving around. Like one of the anecdotes in the article is that he just makes his way around the White House and is like checking in with people and taking his dogs out in the lawn. So maybe he's burning off that sugar. Can I tell you what I'm embarrassed about, which is so ironic? I mean, this is Aren't We Relatable Corner, that I had the same thought when you were talking about the chocolate chip cookies and everything. And I didn't say it out loud because I thought, well, you know, that's really relatable. Most of the people listening, like, they're not so... uh anti-sugar as I am and I didn't you know and like I, but yeah I had the exact same thought I'm like that is a lot of sh-. and and I feel bad about the fact that I am the guy now who like when I walk through a restaurant and I look at other plates like I don't judge the people but I do think oh you don't you don't know that's that's not good for you it, you it, you <laughs> think it's good for you and it's it's marketed as good for you but oh, it's bad and uh and it's Try like being I, a school principal Jason oh god uh, I can't imagine I have these kids bring in just like Stuff that I, I just couldn't, and we would have good banter about it, but it some of these kids could shoot into outer space with the kind of energy that they would be consuming. Uh, some of the, I had this one girl in, in my school who I, I counted it one day. I think it was like 6,000 calories for breakfast. It's <laughs> unbelievable. unbelievable. Well, we, we feed True so little sugar that uh, he's like, when, when he and I go through the grocery store, he'll pick things up and be like, Dad, this is real? Because he thinks it's like made up and only in the movies. Um, so like, He's going to go to college one day and he's just going to just, just OD have on a sugar. bender. Have yeah, a bender. It, it could be real bad. But uh, yeah, like when he has, like Halloween, when he gets to have like three pieces of candy, putting him to bed is like trying to tuck in Mick Jagger. I mean, he, it's just <laughs> like, he or Keith Richards, I guess. It's just, he's all over the place. Anyway, I had that same thought. And the irony is during Aren't We Relatable Corner, I held back because it didn't feel relatable, but I I am concerned as well. All right. um, For Grab and Ore, uh, we're going to bring it back to another one of our listeners. Uh, Hey, guys. uh, Big fan. Just wanted to say, not sure how many listeners you guys have in New Mexico, but if on your next show, uh, you could give a shout out uh, to everyone in the first congressional district there to uh, head out to the polls. That's going to be uh, June 1st, that's a Tuesday, Fort Melanie Stansbury. You know, really important that we, we don't let this one get away from us and let that narrow majority get only more narrow, got to hold on to, you know, as much turf as we can. So if you could give a shout out on the next show to remind everyone in that district, uh, go and vote if they haven't voted already. 
that'd be terrific. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Take care. Bye. Great. So that's June 1st. If you are in New Mexico, make sure to turn out. If you have uh, members of your family or friends who are there, make sure to remind them to vote. Also, if you're a listener and and you want to send in a voicemail, you can call 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.